the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, September 12th, 1922. I'm Sally Helm. It started with a toothache. Molly Maggia's dentist took a look at her aching mouth and said she had a run-of-the-mill infection in her gums. It'd probably get better. Only it didn't. The dentist removed one tooth and then another and another. Each time, the abscesses left behind refused to heal and strange pains began to appear, not just in Molly's mouth, but in her hips, her feet, One day in the spring of 1922, Molly went to see her dentist again. He poked a painful spot on her jaw. The bone gave way, and he realized that he was able to just lift Molly's jawbone out of her mouth. That's how much this girl in her early 20s is falling apart. One tiny bright spot? Molly has Edith Mead a trained nurse who happens to live in the same boarding house that Molly does in Orange, New Jersey. Edith knows Molly pretty well, knows that she's full of energy and determined to live independently, knows too that she loved her job, painting glow-in-the-dark numbers onto watch faces so that you could read them at night, until she became too sick to continue. Edith has been doing what she can to keep Molly comfortable, But on this horrible afternoon in September, she can't do anything. The infection has spread to Molly's throat and Molly starts hemorrhaging blood. Edith tries to stop the bleeding, but she can't. Around five o'clock in the afternoon, Molly Magia dies. Edith Mead never forgot her. Two years later, someone comes asking about Molly, a woman from the Consumers League of New Jersey. Edith welcomes her in, tells her everything she knows, because, she says, she doesn't want anything like that to happen to anyone ever again. Unfortunately, it already has. The reason this investigator is here is because other girls in New Jersey have gotten sick. Other girls have watched their bodies fall apart. And the thing that links all those girls is the job that Molly Maggia loved, painting glow-in-the-dark numbers onto watch faces so that you could read them in the night. Today, the radium girls. For years, radium was treated as not only harmless, but healthy. How could that happen? And how did a group of women devote themselves to fighting their employers' lies and to creating a safer world that they wouldn't live to see? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Art Fryer lives just up the road from the factory where Molly Maggia used to work in Orange, New Jersey. It was on Alden Street, and it was uh, like a, an industrial city. Industry was at the heart of the town. Art remembers that factory whistles set the tempo of the day. We used to go to school with their whistle, go to lunch on their whistle, go in for dinner on their whistle when the guys were being let out of the factory. A lot of Art's family worked in these factories, including his aunt Grace, who had worked with Molly Maggia at the United States Radium Corporation, USRC. I lived half a block away from that factory, and nobody talked about it. One of the buildings was still there. When I was a kid, it was a sequin factory. Art and his friends would walk around the old building, peeking in at the workers. They'd rummage around in the garbage, looking at the odd detritus that sequins left behind. These rolls of iridescent plastic that they had punched the sequins out of. Art and his friends would hang out next to the factory, play kickball. So we didn't have any real good playground facilities on that side of town. So a lot of us would sneak in and play ball on this level, empty lot. There are warning signs on the walls, but Art's a kid, so he and the others don't really pay attention. It's not like the adults in town are raising some huge alarm. Nobody told us it was radioactive. April 6th, 1917, five years before the death of Molly Maggia, the U.S. has just entered World War I. Art Fryer's aunt, Grace Fryer, is 18. You know, she was kind of the cool kid, a cool aunt, you know? She had a job, she was independent. Two of her brothers have gone overseas to fight. And Grace Fryer, wanting to find her own way to contribute to the war effort, has joined USRC. She works as a dial painter. So there was a little patriotism thing because a lot of this um, dial painting was for wartime stuff. The radium girls were employed to paint watches and clocks with glow-in-the-dark radium paint. Kate Moore is an author who's written a book all about the radium girls. That's what the dial painters came to be called, radium girls. They were generally very young women. Many of them were 14, 15, 16 years of age when they're starting in the dial painting studios. Grace and the other girls are taught to mix the glowing paint by hand. They sort of scatter in a little dash of radium powder with some water and an adhesive and they'd stir it all up. It would splash all over their hands and clothes. Once they get the mixture right, they start to paint the numbers onto the watch faces. It's meticulous detailed work. Some of the watch faces were just three centimeters across, so the numbers had to be tiny. And so to get a fine point on the brushes, the women are taught to lip point. So they literally suck on their brushes so that the bristles will taper to a point. And they do that over and over again. The girls are paid by the watch, so they have to be precise, but also fast. And Grace, by the time she is trained, is painting 250 dials every single day. 250 dials a day. It's demanding work, but being a dial painter is also considered a great job, one of the best that a working-class girl can get. If you were artistic, this was not a bad job. Plus, the money was great. 
And so it was the job that everybody wanted. And therefore, if there were vacancies, which there were as the war started, they used to promote the jobs to their sisters and their cousins and their friends. The dial painters would say, hey, come work with me, which made the dial painting studios feel kind of like a big family. The company used to organize company picnics. So there are lots of photographs that I found in the archives of the women, you know, hanging out together. There was a small brook that ran behind the studios. I have a picture of my aunt with two other girls uh, on boards over the brook. And the girls are swinging their legs um, on this makeshift bridge and they're eating ice cream cones. It was like an idyllic looking, you know, it's, it's cute. So for the girls working in the studio, there's a homey family feeling. And to outsiders, the work is actually pretty glamorous. Glamorous because the women got to work with this glow-in-the-dark, you know, wonder substance that everyone was raving about. That wonder substance is radium. The element had just been discovered by Marie and Pierre Curie. And the world was obsessed. I mean, Marie Curie herself was fascinated by its glow-in-the-dark shine. You know, she used to be entranced by my beautiful radium, she called it. It glows with an eerie, pale green light. And it's not only beautiful, radium has real medical benefits. It was found that this immense radiation that it had could destroy cancerous tumors. And doctors figure, okay, it can treat cancer. If it can do that, what else might we be able to do with it? The answer, it seemed, was radium can do anything. Got dull hair? Try some radium and rainwater shampoo. Have a sinus infection? A product called Radithor promised to give you a dose of internal sunshine and clear that right up. It was put into literally everything. You could get radium cosmetics to give you a glowing complexion. You could buy radium lingerie and jock straps to boost your sex life. That is right, lingerie and jock straps. And it gets worse. Ads say that if you really care about your health and you're rich enough to afford it, then you should definitely be drinking radium water. The recommended dose was five to seven glasses a day. People were crazy for radium. There was even a popular Broadway tune called The Radium Dance. And the dial painters get to work with this magical element all day. They take full advantage. There was one Italian girl who once painted her teeth with the glow-in-the-dark radium paint because she had a date that night and she wanted a smile that would knock him dead. The girls would wear their best dresses to work. So when they went out dancing afterwards in the music halls and later the speakeasies, the radium girls would be the ones shining and shimmering on the dance floor covered in this glowing radium dust. Moore told us, the girls looked like glowing spirits when they walked home in the dark. So their neighbors gave them a nickname, the Ghost Girls. Which is so haunting, given what comes next. It's worth picturing the women as they were at this moment. 
Grace Fryer, for example, who looks straight at the camera in an early photo. There's a knowingness to her expression. It looks like if you told her something she found silly, she might just roll her eyes at you. Her hair has the short, tight curls favored by movie actresses then, and she's wearing what looks to be a pearl necklace. She's a confident young woman with a sought-after job. One day, Grace Fire is at her workstation in the studio, trying to keep up with her daily quota of watches, lipping and dipping her brush over and over again. When, she says, she notices a man walking past. That man is the founder of USRC and the inventor of the paint that Grace is using. And he sort of froze as he passed through and looked at Grace as though seeing her for the first time. He sees her lip pointing, popping that radium-covered brush in and out of her mouth. And he comes over to her and he says very clearly, do not do that. You will get sick. Von Sakaki knows radium better than anyone else at the company. He'd studied under Marie and Pierre Curie. He was reportedly completely transfixed by radium. And he knew it was dangerous. Once, while working in the lab, a bit of radium had gotten onto his finger. Apparently his finger looked as though an animal had gnawed it because, you know, the radium had destroyed the tip of his finger. Von Sakaki cut off the fingertip to contain the damage and kept working. So when he sees Grace Fryer putting his radium paint into her mouth, he issues a warning. Well, Grace is never one to back down from something that she thinks needs investigating. She goes straight to her boss and asks, is this true? Will I get sick from this paint? Her boss says, absolutely not. And Grace believes it. After all, rich people drink radium in their water by choice. You know, if if her manager, if the company are saying it's safe, then it has to be safe. Why wouldn't you think it's safe if you're reassured that it is? After World War I ends, Grace decides to leave her job as a dial painter. A lot of other radium girls do the same. They move on to other jobs. They get married, have children, live their lives. The first sign of something being wrong is so innocent that nobody heeded the warning bells. It's Molly Magia's toothache. Just a painful tooth like any of us could get. But then there's the fact that things don't get better for Molly when the dentist removes her tooth. In fact, over the course of about a year, things get as bad as they can possibly get. She was dressed in a white dress. She wore stockings and she had black pumps on her feet. And she was buried in a wooden coffin with a silver nameplate. The doctors had been flummoxed by Molly's case, her terrible falling apart. But after her death, they give her family an explanation. They say Molly had syphilis. Some of her symptoms do marry with syphilis. And of course, this is an independent young woman who's left the family home. You know, you can see the moral color to this story. You can see the assumptions that they jump to. But Molly isn't the only radium girl to get sick. Grace Fryer develops mysterious back pains. Her hips start to ache and she begins to walk with a limp. 
and other radium girls are having problems that their doctors can't explain or cure. They're all friends. They're related to each other. And so they start to share that they're all suffering. And it's the women, really, who first band together and realize that there is a problem. Rumors begin circulating in town. People are saying, don't take these jobs. And that's beginning to hurt the company. So they commission a report from some reputable doctors. The report finds the cause of all these problems is radium. That is not the answer the company was hoping for. They do their best to suppress the report, but the word gets out. You know, the fact that radium is identified as the problem is shocking, cutting-edge news. The company still has a way to dodge what they see as a burgeoning PR crisis. Whatever the report says, there's still no proof. Because in 1925, doctors don't know how to measure radiation in the body of a living person. You have to have died before anyone could, you know, test your bones and see if it was radium inside them. But the radium girls don't want to wait for an autopsy. They want proof now. Critical to this step was a doctor called Harrison Martland, who was the chief medical examiner in New Jersey. Martland fancies himself a bit of a detective, and the radium girls are the medical mystery of the day. He comes up with a groundbreaking diagnostic tool, a breath test to measure the amount of radiation trapped in the women's lungs. And there's another one that reads the radiation coming from their skeletons. So in the summer of 1925, the girls are called in one by one by Harrison Martland to be tested. When it's Grace Fryer's turn, she walks in and sees Dr. Sabin von Sakaki. And Grace obviously remembers that warning, that wartime warning that he gave her. The warning about putting the paintbrush into her mouth. Do not do that. You will get sick. And it hits her. He had known all this time that the paint was dangerous. And if he knew all along, then the company knew all along too. Apparently, they hadn't cared. But now it seems that Dr. Von Sakaki, at least, has had a change of heart. Because here he is helping the radium girls prove their case. Dr. Martland later says that there's no way he could have devised these tests without Von Sakaki's help. I think a combination of, of guilt and scientific curiosity probably motivates him to get involved in the way that he does. Dr. Von Sakaki is helping now, but Grace wonders, why didn't he do something sooner? She confronts him. She says, you know, directly, why didn't you tell us? Von Sakaki deflects, says, I tried to warn the corporation about the dangers, but in the end, I had no control over how the painters used the paint. This isn't a satisfying answer. But I think the fact that she was courageous enough to ask the question tells us a lot about her personality. Grace gets the tests. Martland scans her body with an electrometer. She blows into test tubes to measure the amount of radiation in her lungs. And when the results come back... It's a huge moment because it's the first time they receive definitive proof scientific evidence that it is radium that is hurting them. 
Grace and the others have radiation poisoning. They're going to die. But many of the women realize in this moment, as horrifying and tragic as it is for them personally, they realize that it gives them hope as well. Because with this proof, they can hold the company accountable. They can try and bring this knowledge to the world that actually radium is dangerous. They could try and protect the other workers who are still dial painting. And protect anyone else who encounters radium in those household and beauty products. In their butter, their chocolate, their milk. The Radium Girls join forces to fight back. On May 18, 1927, five former dial painters file lawsuits against the United States Radium Corporation. Grace Fryer is leading the charge. She's the one who manages to find a lawyer because so many lawyers turn them down. But now they have one, Raymond Berry. Raymond Berry realizes that they're gonna need all the scientific proof that they can get. And that includes looking again at Molly Maggia's death. Did she die from syphilis, as stated on her death certificate? Or was radium to blame? To find out, they need Molly's bones. So they have her body exhumed. The coffin was aglow as they lifted it out and exposed her skeleton to the world. Doctors take Molly's glowing bones to a lab. And that test shows that she died of radium poisoning and there is not a single trace of syphilis in her body. Now the women have their evidence. They tell the company, we'll see you in court. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When the women arrive for court in January 1928, there are flashbulbs going off everywhere. The world's media have come to witness what's going on. The trial of the Radium Girls is huge international news. Because radium wasn't just a problem in the U.S. It was also found in French cosmetics, in British boots and stockings. So this is something that concerns the whole world. USRC had spent years silencing anybody who might imply that radium caused health problems. They'd hired doctors to give the dial painters a clean bill of health. They'd bullied the families of girls who started to ask questions. They'd even buried the report that they had commissioned when it suggested their employees were being routinely exposed to dangerous levels of radiation. When the trial starts, the company comes out swinging. The company is trying everything it can, every legal argument possible to try and avoid even getting to that question of is there any guilt involved. The first thing they try is to get the case thrown out on a technicality. 
USRC points out that if you want to sue over a workplace injury suffered in New Jersey, there's a strict two-year statute of limitations. These injuries happened way more than two years ago, so the case should be dismissed. The women's lawyer, Raymond Berry, he has a very clever interpretation of the two-year statute of limitations. Berry tells the court, it's only been two years since doctors figured out how to confirm that radium poisoning even existed. He said that's when the clock on the statute of limitations should start ticking, meaning that the radium girls have filed their complaint in the nick of time. That argument wins the day, and the trial begins. The radium girls present a mountain of damning evidence, including Dr. Harrison Martland's research and Molly Magia's glowing bones. The press laps it up. You know, people are hanging on their every word. They, you know, newspapers want to speak to them, to do interviews with them. Grace Fryer and the other girls become celebrities overnight. And then it comes time for Grace to testify. She's fairly weak at the time when she takes the stand. Her jaw is bandaged from an operation. She needs a metal back brace just to stand. Her x-rays have shown that her vertebrae have been crushed by the radium that's inside her spine. But with effort, she pushes through. She's incredibly determined and her testimony is clear and concise and elegant. Exactly what she needs to do to get through the case. Grace explains how she was taught to lip point and how Sabin Bonsakaki had warned her that lip pointing might make her sick. Her testimony is devastating. And when it's finished, the defense calls its next star witness, Dr. Sabin Vonsakaki himself. Defense lawyer Raymond Berry is eager to get this testimony on the record. Barry is really excited because he thinks this is going to be the nail in the coffin moment. This is going to be what wins the case for the girls. Remember, Vonsakaki is a foremost expert on radium, trained by the Curies. You know, if anyone knows about it, it's this guy. Not to mention, he had invented the poison paint and helped develop the test to prove that the paint, the radium, had made the dial painters sick. And now he has a chance to redeem himself by testifying on the dial painter's behalf. And so Barry asked him, you know, is it, isn't it true that you had warned the company and that you felt you couldn't do anything about it because the dial painters were not in your jurisdiction? That's the way Vonsakaki had explained it to Grace that day in Dr. Martland's office. But on the stand... The doctor replies, absolutely not. That is not true. He denies it. The courtroom is stunned. And then Vansakaki proceeds with his lie. Not only did I not warn the company, he says, I never told Grace Fryer that lip pointing would make her sick. He didn't have any memory of a specific warning about her getting sick because he said the danger was unknown to us. That us is really important because it puts him back on side with the company. He's not saying the danger was unknown to me. He's saying the danger was unknown to us. At the crucial moment, under oath, Von Sakaki betrays the Radium Girls. He's partially responsible for their deaths and maimings, 
but he sides with the company when it counts. It doesn't make any sense given the previous assistance that he'd given them, given his previous, you know, support of the fact that this was an occupational disease. What could have made him do such a thing? It turns out, Von Sakaki was dying too. Remember, he'd worked closely with radium for years. You can imagine that if you're immersing your arm into solutions of radium, you know, that's not going to end well. Around the same time the girls were undergoing their tests, on a whim, Von Sakaki had blown into the breath test that he'd helped create. And he found, to his horror, that his radiation levels were the highest that test had ever recorded. So perhaps his own mortality influenced his decisions. Perhaps staring death in the face affected him in some way. Moore says she found no definitive evidence about the motive behind Von Sakaki's change of testimony. However, she did find a memo in the files of the United States Radium Corporation. As the trial approached, a company official had written, quote, we need to get a line on what Bonsakaki is doing and where he is. Moore says perhaps they tracked him down. Perhaps a conversation took place behind closed doors that helped pry him away from Grace and the other women and back to the company's side. A few months later, in November 1928, Bonsakaki dies of radiation poisoning. The papers liken him to Dr. Frankenstein a victim of his own creation. Whatever the reason for Von Sakaki's about-face, his testimony seriously damages the Radium Girls' case. In the end, they settle with the company out of court. I guess my, my sort of biggest question about it is, is it a victory? It's not a full victory, let's be frank but it's a victory for these women who have fought against the most unimaginable physical hardships to even get to this point. They have fought against countless doctors who are telling them that they're wrong when they know that their bodies are telling them that they're right. The United States Radium Corporation agrees to cover the women's medical costs and pay each woman $10,000, the equivalent of about $170,000 today. Plus, they pay a small annual stipend. But there's a catch. Grace and the others must submit to annual exams by a committee dominated by company doctors. It's essentially to prove that they haven't made a miraculous recovery. After all, the company can't have those women taking advantage of its generosity. And sure enough, four years later, the in-house doctors stopped approving most of the women's medical expenses for repayment. Grace Fryer's nephew, Art, told us that his dad would drive Grace to her doctor's appointments. I think it affected my father very, very strongly and not in a good way. He says his dad had to watch Grace fall apart piece by piece. And, you know, when he took her into the city, they would cut pieces of her jaw out. And then he's driving her back and it couldn't have been a very happy ride coming back, right? Grace Fryer dies on October 27th, 1933. 
the cause of death is radium sarcoma caused by industrial poisoning. The truth is right there on her death certificate. And that is something that Grace herself managed to achieve through her fight for justice and recognition. But Grace's story doesn't end in her death. She knew it wouldn't. That's why she fought so hard in court. So perhaps one of Grace's most lasting legacies is that because of her bravery in bringing suit and because of the international recognition that the case attracted, it meant that other dial painters in other centers saw that news. They read those newspaper articles. They confronted their managers. Seven years after Grace's death, in 1939, a group of dial painters in Illinois take their employers to court. And they win. An employer was found liable for what they had done to employees. It gets people thinking differently about safety and workers' rights. And that eventually leads to the creation of a new federal agency, the Occupational and Safety Health Administration, or OSHA. So this kind of laid the basis for, um, like, workers' compensation and OSHA. If you've ever been on a job site and something's terribly, you know, and I have been, you know, because I worked construction for years. So, um, you know, you could call OSHA and they'd send an inspector down and say, you can't do this. So what these women did back then has implications for all of us today. It makes me very proud of my aunt. It, it, it makes me feel now that I know her. There are so many girls in my family named Grace. If not their first name, it's their middle name in honor of Grace. The radium used in those watch dials has a half-life of 1,600 years. And so it is still very much present in the dial painter's bones. Even as we're talking now and the women are laying at rest in their graves, their bodies are still glowing from the radium. Those isotopes live on. But so do the protections that the women fought for, through all their pain, so that they could leave the world safer for the rest of us. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, which is historythisweek at history.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. That is 212-351-0410. Please get in touch. We really love to hear from you. Special thanks today to guest Kate Moore, author of The Radium Girls, the dark story of America's shining women. If you want to learn more about The Radium Girls, head over to theradiumgirls.com. Thanks also to Art Fryer. By the way, Art wants you to know that Grace is in the running for this year's American Women's Quarters program, which honors influential women who have shaped American history. This episode was produced by Rebecca Nolan. It was sound designed by Brian Flood and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press, Morgan Givens, and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.